Hey, hey, welcome to another episode of Marketing Against the Green, your favorite podcast on all things marketing and growth, where we take you behind the scenes and unpack the secrets of how businesses and the best in the world grow. I am here and joined, as always, with the Seth Godin of Search Engines, the Mike Prince of Product-Led <laughs> Growth, Kieran Flanagan. What's up, man? Uh, you're going to get at those, Kip. Since we've uh, taken the intros over, you're taking the intros over, you're doing a very good job. I'm on board. No, Kieran, the intro was a lead into the first thing I wanted to talk with you about, which I'm catching up on Billions. For people who don't know, that was actually a Billions reference. Oh, yes. That was a billion reference. And the reason I say that is Seth Godin was on Billions. The latest series? Yeah, season six, episode six. There's a, there's a scene where Seth Godin and some other like thought leaders are at like the board table advising the main character, Mike Prince. And so we have a new goal, Kieran. Our goal is to get good enough at marketing that we get a cameo on a show. Because Seth Godin got so good at marketing, wrote some books. He got he has a billion. He, they gave him a line. He wasn't even just there. He actually got to say a line. We are in Ireland. Everything comes to us late. I can't get a Peloton, can't get an eight sleep mattress. But um, I haven't seen the latest series. I've seen all the series uh, so up to date. So I'm looking forward to seeing that. If anyone wants to put us on your show, it doesn't matter how big the show is. It could be a local show. <laughs> it could be a school play. <laughs> we'll, 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 we'll say yes. We'll turn up. We'll shill in any way, shape or form. Right. That's our new goal. That's a noteworthy goal. I wanted to start off with a quick quote. So we launched last week and thank you for everyone who was part of the launch and all of our listeners who were part of the launch. Someone read the description of our show and gave us a really great quote that I have not heard before in terms of George Bernard Shaw and how they thought about the podcast. It's from uh, Miko Seppa, who runs a really great marketing agency. And the quote is from George Bernard Shaw. The quote is, the reasonable man adapts himself to the world the unreasonable one persists in trying to adapt a word to himself. Therefore, all progress depends on the unreasonable man. I thought that was a great quote in terms of how someone thought about the first three episodes. Kieran, it's a great quote. It's one of my favorite quotes of my entire life. It was on the bulletin board by my bed growing up. And my dad gave it to me. And Audience, if you want a lesson in how much Kieran does not listen to me or what I think, I actually gave that <laughs> quote in one of our oh our, our, oh, our no. draft prep episodes of the podcast. Oh, I think you did give it. Oh, my God. And, and Kieran has since forgotten it. So if you want a lesson in what it's like to have a great podcast co-host, don't ask Kieran. Oh, no. And I also am embarrassed. You you were watching the latest series of Billions. I was watching the latest series, Kip, uh-huh. of The Ultimatum. Yeah, I, I'm seeing a lot of Twitter chatter on The Ultimatum, and I, I, I literally have no idea what it is. Yeah, I, I have watched most episodes, and it just left me confused about the human race. What service is it on? Netflix. All right, I'll, I'll, I'll catch up so we can, we can talk about it on a future pod. I think so. All right, so for everybody listening, we are doing a special Twitter sode today. So some some of our episodes, we talk to experts in the industry. Some days we pick a topic, and some days we deep dive on all of the amazing things that are happening on the internet because it's overflowing with awesomeness. And that is today. Kieran, I cannot get over the amount of stuff I could talk to you about today. I am blown away. Can I, can I start off with my first topic. Yeah, you start off. I have just so much stuff as well. Let's go. I mean, let, let's let's do this. Here's my question for you. Should we at HubSpot license a board ape? So apparently Coinbase 
is offering three Ethereum to a lot of the big NFT holders to have a one-year licensing deal for the IP of different NFTs, especially Bored Apes. Like, should we go get the Orange Ape and license the IP for the Orange Ape? And then uh, at Pirate Ape on Twitter said that that Coinbase's offer is too low and it should be 100K minimum. And he's got a great deal at, at around 100K. So businesses are starting to license NFT IP for marketing purposes. WTF, man, Where, what world are we living in? What's your take? Okay, well, I have actually, Kip, we are so well in sync because we don't talk about our stories. And I have a story that goes perfectly with your story, which is iHeartRadio yeah. is buying the commercial license. You might've seen this to CryptoPunks, Mutant Ape, Yacht Club, The World of Women, and they are going to build a podcast network yeah. around the characters of NFTs. Boy, if you are in the right NFT, you are just earning money from, you know, future drops associated with your NFT and now commercial rights. And that was one of the big parts about NFTs and what NFTs have given to creators is the kind of commercial rights to those things. I think it could end up being so, so cool. Like some of these things could be so dope, right? Coinbase <laughs> or awful, right? Just awful. Look, this is my take on this, is most of this NFT licensing is going to be crap. I think there are some smart marketers out there who will crush and get really great. Like, for people listening, you're probably like, what the hell are these people talking about? Right. They're talking about licensing cartoon characters that are owned by other people. Yes, that is exactly what we're talking about. Let me take you behind the scenes of how this could maybe work. I think there's an all orange ape. I can't remember. I'm pretty sure. I don't know what. And when I say ape, I'm talking about an NFT that's part of the Board Ape Yacht Club collection. You can visit OpenSea.io. Look at that collection. There's 10,000 different cartoon apes. And imagine, Karen, that if we at HubSpot, we wanted to do a brand campaign featuring that orange ape, or maybe we wanted to do a great graphic novel on how you would actually grow a business and it's a fictional business all around mm. you know this this orange apes you know banana stand whatever i'm making i'm making this all up on the fly right but you could imagine that like that becomes really interesting and becomes so synonymous with us that maybe we even we go and buy the ape outright so that we own the ip long term but the interesting thing to understand and that's like a really far wacky crazy idea the thing to understand is we are moving to a world where intellectual property matters deeply and the ability to own or take advantage of intellectual property is going to be essential for any brand. And so I think the number one greatest opportunity for a brand is to create some type of intellectual property that then gets merchandised and licensed all across popular culture and they essentially get distribution for the brand for free. That's going to be really hard to do. The next biggest opportunity is going to be to take uh, something like a board Ape Yacht Club that has a lot of potential in the zeitgeist, license that and leverage that existing distribution for your brand. Am I a crazy person that this is going to happen or what? Uh, I think it's going to happen. How impactful it is, is going to be interesting, right? Totally. Let's look at the iHeartMedia. They're going to build a podcast network called the Non-Fun Squad. Mm -hmm. The Non-Fun Squad is going to be commercial characters from these well-known NFTs. They'll buy the commercial rights and then build fictional podcasts around those characters. And so what upside do you get from licensing that asset, right? Do you want to just license that asset because you care about the people 
who know and are going to be excited by that NFT. So I want to license a CryptoPunk because I want to reach people who are interested in CryptoPunks. Or does the CryptoPunk in some way enhance my brand? Or to your point, the orange ape, right? You know, for our listeners, I think it would be really great to understand how you think about that. Would we license the orange ape because we think it makes our brand more appealing in some way because we want to reach people who are interested in the orange ape or we actually really still have to come up with a great story around that orange ape ourselves. And that's actually the most important part of making that interesting to our audience. Look, uh, I want to close out on this topic with, I think what we'll see is some people doing licensing in the short term and realizing that the game is not about licensing, it's about ownership. Because if you license uh, that IP for a year and you do a bunch of marketing work with it, what's going to happen is you're going to add a ton of value to that initial, to the actual token, the actual image itself. Exactly. And the price of future licensing is just going to go up. So you either need to buy that asset before, or you need to know that it's a very temporary flash in the pan, like we're going to do this for six or 12 months and move on. Just look how much the world has changed, right? McDonald's, all these big brands historically do licensing deals with like the Avengers, right? Totally. Like Spider-Man gets shown in the ad. The the advertising campaign for the latest Batman film was phenomenal. Like all of that across uh, pop culture and across advertising. And now we've moved to a world where you could just be someone who minted an NFT for $100 sitting there at home and your NFT ends up being licensed by these major, major brands and these large ad campaigns. Like, mm-hmm. you know, we we always talked about how crazy the world has changed. And sometimes you kind of need to just pause and think about that for a while. Wow, we are just on the precipice to so much change. And this is actually happening today. This is not like, oh, we're not conjecturing that this is going to happen in a couple of years. Like this is happening in the market today. So if you are listening to this podcast and you do not think that NFTs, that the next generation of the web, that all of these things are going to change the work that you do on a daily basis, you are going to be fundamentally wrong because it is happening right now. Right. And I think for marketers, I think there's going to be a bunch of interesting ways that you can license these assets and you have to just think about what are you hoping to get from it and make sure you set it up for success. I would love to go to user-generated companies, Kip. User-generated companies, what up? Right? User-generated companies. I'm coining user-generated companies. Yeah. Are you going to mention your own tweet here? I'm going to mention my own LinkedIn update that I did on user-generated content. And I want to talk about some concepts to lead into this that I think our listeners will be interested in. Please. So you and I, what do we obsess over nonlinear growth? Let's just kind of pull back what we mean by that for marketers. Well, in the B2B space, what we kind of, or and the B2C space, there's really two ways to get nonlinear growth. There's user-generated content and there is product virality. What do we mean by nonlinear growth? Your growth is not dependent upon humans. Your growth is dependent upon community or technology, for the most part, community. And you can grow in an exponential way because of that user-generated content. I incentivize my community to create content for me. Companies like Stack Overflow, companies like Reddit, like you, you incentivize your community to create the content. And then virality, like how do I incentivize my audience to share the product with other members of my community and members that are not in my community to pull them into my community. So you agree that they're the two ways? Have I missed anything on the nonlinear growth? No, and just to try to break down nonlinear growth for for people who aren't maybe dorks like us. Linear growth means like you hire a salesperson, you hire a marketer to create something or to sell something, and you can only get the return on the amount of time that human has, right? And when you write a computer program or you have other people that you're not paying to create content for you, if you have viral coefficient to your product, that means you are getting growth outside of the direct kind of dollar in, dollar out that you're investing in your business. And that is how 
how you kind of have an asymmetric return, meaning that you, instead of just kind of growing, you know, incrementally 10, 20% year over year, you're able to grow hundreds of percent year over year. The thing that we have talked a lot about is incentives matter a lot to your marketing strategy and Web3 is changing incentives. And I just will quick make a quick note that I've realized we're doing a Twitter Twitter episode. And not only is this not a tweet, but it's from myself. <laughs> <laughs> The non-Twitter episode. So, so far, so far on the pod, Kieran has failed to listen to me in previous pods and is now referencing himself. Talk about my own stuff as an expert on Twitter. Yeah, you, we we see where this is going, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> right, and so incentives matter, right? Like one one of the things that we do when we're building our marketing is like we have a incentive led mission where we want to ten x the value for people who consume our assets, consume our tools for free versus what's available in the market, right? That is our incentive to pull people into our community. The fascinating thing about Web3 is it changes incentives so much that it's not just how do I incentivize people to share my product or create content for me to pull more people into my community? It's how do I get people to actually build the product itself through incentives? Yeah. Some of the examples, Helium, like a really great example of Web3 company, you can plug a router into your house and people can actually connect to your Wi-Fi and you get paid out on Helium coins. There's over 500,000 routers in 47,000 American cities. They're building the product, right? The users are building the company because they're incentivized to do that. HiveMapper, now HiveMapper, this is an example of a company that I don't think needs to be built, but hey, whatever, it's still cool. They're building Google Maps. Useless company alert. Can you build a better Google Maps just because it's Web3? No, no, no. You could better be- build a better inside building version Google Maps. Oh. There are some tangential products there, but no. I like that. I also want to jump in for the audience. For people who don't speak, Kieran, router is router. <laughs> you know, right. your internet router. He, he likes to call it router. That is the European. Uh, the European yeah. and Irish version. So for folks uh, on my side of the pond, he is talking about your Wi-Fi router and helium kind of decentralizing Wi-Fi networks, which is amazing. But Kieran, I think the point you're trying to make is we're moving from this world of user-generated content and, you know, which is kind of a web two thing where people create content on LinkedIn or different websites and, and get distribution from it to user-generated companies. Right. And what to you, what, what does it mean to you to build a user-generated company? You talked a lot about incentives, but what does that really like mean in practice? So it means that we're really going from community to building the product to customer, right? I can be, yes. I can help build Helium by adding a router to my house and getting to earn coins. And then I can also be a customer of Helium. Or I can help build HiveMapper by adding a dash cam to my car. When I'm out driving, it will map the road that I'm driving on. Why would I do that? Because every time I do that, I get those coins from HiveMapper. But I can also be a customer of HiveMapper. There is another Web3 company doing this that, again, I don't know will work because it's a it's a version of Foursquare, but super local, where I can take a picture of me checking into a local business and I can upload that to the app and it's going to combine those and build a new Foursquare. And I can also be a customer of Superlocal. So for me, user-generated content helps to build your marketing engine. I can incentivize people to create content for me other people will see that content come in and actually become a customer and then they may create content. Here, I can incentivize people to build the actual company with me, right? Incentivize them to build mm-hmm. Helium, Superlocal, HiveMapper. And I think that's super interesting because your community are both customers, but also part of how you are building the company itself. Okay. 
let's let's say let's say I'm with you. I, I do agree with you on, on this, but I think I want to try to make it more tangible for everybody listening. And it kind of goes back to the first topic we were talking about around the, the NFT space. Well, what is really happening is that it used to be a one company, a brand, accrued all the value. And so it could be Marvel in the entertainment space. It could be, you know, Google in the mapping space. And now what we're saying is that the next generation of the internet, the product experience and by correlation, the actual revenue distribution is going to be owned by the whole community. Yep. Right. And and if people out there are trying to get their head around this, imagine you were a, a manufacturing company and your customers helped you source materials or helped you design products you were going to manufacture. And then you, you know, basically gave them a license and, and a revenue share for that. That is the the kind of modern world we are moving to is a more decentralization of of how revenue is shared across a community. And subsequently, that means it's going to transform how companies are going to be built. Right. And companies are going to be built in a much more decentralized way, in a much more community first way. And what I'm telling you to everybody who's a marketer out there, that is freaking awesome. You know why that's awesome? Is because you start from day one having people that care about you, having people that are invested in your success who will go and tell your story with you. And that is what is going to happen in the next generation of marketing. Kieran and I have spent the last 20 years begging people and convincing people one-on-one and through mass scale to care about what we were doing and to care about the product and come on and join the mission with us. And now because of incentives being changed, we no longer have to ask. They're asking us to go harder and push harder because their incentives are aligned with us. That's the thing you want to take away here. The thing it does for marketers as well in Web3, which I think is cool, is it pulls marketing way back in the product lifecycle and that you're starting to market to people much earlier because you need them to build the actual product with you. And so it makes community part of the product lifecycle from a much earlier point. Like even before you have product market fit, you need to have community. That is unheard of in Web2, right? You would never try to build a community for the most part until you have product market fit. But now community is part of how you get product market fit. I think that's fascinating. Okay. Can we switch switch gears here? Let's do that. I think there are people listening always want like kind of tangible examples of what success looks like. You know, what does success look like in marketing and media in the world that you and I live in all the time? And one of the things I found on Twitter that I found really interesting was what I think is one of the best company podcast launches ever. Wow. That's a big statement. Let's go. So there's a company out there called Rally. And Rally is an investing company where people can invest in alternative assets like collectibles, art, things like that. And they launched last week a new podcast. And what, you know, before I tell you anything about this podcast, Karen, what would you expect a company who does like investing in alternative assets? What do you think their podcast is like? How are they going to frame that up? Like, what, what, what do you think? A typical podcast, I'm not saying this is what I would do, but a podcast, a company like that would launch would be to uh, have people on who either own these kind of assets and talk through their kind of portfolio or on the opposite side, people who are launching these assets and talk about why they're cool so people can actually listen in and think, wow, I'm either going to copy that person's portfolio because they have cool things in there or I can learn about the latest things that I should invest in that could be cool for me. That is what I think uh, a typical podcast like that would launch. You're not that far off, but I really like the framing of it and how they really deviated it from the the product. The name of the podcast is awesome. The best money I ever spent. Oh, that's good. 
I do like that. Is, is, <laughs> aren't you like, damn it, they nailed it. Why, why am I not that good at, at headline writing? It's so prescriptive as well. That's really good. It's so it's so perfect. But one of the, the Rally co-founders is running this podcast. And here, I'll read you the summary. Today, anything can be an investment. Join Rally co-founder Rob Petrozo and guests from tech, culture, and commerce in conversations about investing in the future while creating in the moment. We'll be talking about wins, losses, and the significant returns from both. And sometimes they made a little money too. I love it. That's a good podcast description. I'm sorry. It's, it's, it's good. That is a really good company podcast. It is interesting. You, they're getting to the point. It's super tied to the product, but at the same time, super removed from the product. I love, I, I love this example of a really great business podcast that I think anybody out there who is considering doing a business podcast or maybe a YouTube show for their, their business could really look at that for some great inspiration of how they framed and packaged that show. I love it. I love it. Have you listened to it? Yeah, the first episodes with Gary V. It was really good. Yeah. So they got they got a credible person in this space. It's it's good. Uh Gary V crushing it on NFTs. <laughs> he is crushing it on NFT. Hey, where do you want to go next? I have a thing on AI. I don't know if that's like you you want to do something a little bit. Are you are you are you talking about daily? Oh my god, I am talking oh, about daily. Daily, baby. We're here. <laughs> it was on my list. That was next up. Oh wow. That was next up for me. And we don't talk about this. Daily, baby. Let's do it. All right, daily. Oh, this is just me. Wow. Holy <laughs> sh**. Don't know if we can swear we can edit that out. Have you played with this stuff? Because it is bananas. Right? Bananas. Right? Oh my gosh. I went down the daily rabbit hole. Sam Altman, who is very well known for leading the charge of Silicon Valley around AI. Uh, incredibly smart. He runs a company called OpenAI. Daily 13 is the name of the product. It is one of the products from OpenAI, just to reset everybody listening. Can I read you a quote from Sam, which I think every person listening to this podcast should take with them and remember this because I think it is incredibly important. Yeah, please. So he said about OpenAI and DALI, it's a reminder that predictions about AI are very difficult to make. A decade ago, the conventional wisdom was that AI would first impact physical labor and then cognitive labor, and then maybe someday it could do creative work. And that's how we all thought about AI. Last line, and now looks like it's going to go in the opposite order. Wow. What? So, so, so yeah, do, do the order again. Do the order again. I think this is an important thing to emphasize. Yeah, so a decade ago, conventional wisdom was physical labor, then cognitive labor, and maybe someday, maybe someday, not even knowing if it was possible to do this, creative work. And now he thinks it's going to go in the opposite order, creative work, cognitive labor, and then physical labor. That's amazing. And when you go into open AI and play with this stuff, like I went into the DALI, I uh, signed up, I went down a rabbit hole. Tell, pe- tell people what it is, ex- describe it for people, describe one of the ways you played with it, like give us, give us the review. So DALI, it, you are able to give DALI text and it can give you back any image. Now, when I say you can literally describe, someone uh, had something like, I want to have a rabbit sitting on a stool, uh, having a picnic in a forest. That is the information they give the AI. Mm-hmm. And what do they get back? They got back a rabbit sitting in the stool, eating a picnic in the forest. <laughs> and it was a perfect illustration. Now, I don't know why they want that image, but oh my God, it was so cool. And so Sam did this Twitter thread. Go check out Sam Mountain's tweet. You see, he did a whole Twitter thread. He said, hey, give me, give me something you want in an illustration. I'll give you back the image really quick. Ah, I was just like, holy smokes. You go into open, open AI 
You can do product descriptions for Facebook ads. Can I tell you the one that I created for Robinhood? Oh, yeah, yeah, please. All right, this is the AI's ad for Robinhood. Are you tired of watching your friends buy Lambos while you're stuck driving a Honda? Well, now there's a solution. With our new low commission trading platform, you can ape into risky stocks in the hope that they moon. (laughs) (laughs) So that's a a Facebook ad for Robinhood from OpenAI. They should use that. You know what? They even have one of my favorite apps, and I'll tell you why I love this app. Not just because of the functionality, but because I'm a product-led growth obsessive, and I love the way that they get people from the freemium app to the paid app. It's Grammarly. So let me first tell you about the hook because I think it's awesome. You love Grammarly. It's a great company. People should know about them. Yeah, like if you want to see how to get monetization loops into your product, Grammarly, when you're in the free app, you're typing. If you're like me, you're making 100 mistakes a minute because you can't do grammar or you can't do spelling. You can see all of the errors totting up on the left-hand side. And they says, hey, unlock these to upgrade to premium. But I have premium Grammarly. I always use Grammarly for everything because I'm terrible at spelling and grammar. OpenAI has a Grammarly just sitting there. Bananas. <laughs> and it's just like one of the many play around apps. Just play around, not products. You could just play around mm-hmm. and you can literally do all of that stuff. So how did you think about it, Kip? What do you think is important for marketers, creatives to think about in terms of OpenAI? All right. I want to kind of go off on a little bit of a tangent, which is there's a problem in the world. And I've been guilty of this problem myself and had this self-perception as well. Most people in the world fundamentally do not think of themselves as creative people. Mm. And that is a big problem. And what's interesting to me is that we are moving to a world where actually creativity has never been more important. Creativity is how a person, how a brand, how a company differentiates themselves and how they tell a different story and how they get out of the sea of sameness. And what I love about what OpenAI is doing is that There is going to be a whole revolution of technology that brings out the creative in everyone. And I firmly believe that between technology like this, the incentives in Web3 around things like NFTs, that it's going to bring out the creative nature in everyone. And the world, I'm an optimist, I think the world is fundamentally going to get more creative. But at the same time, I think if you're a marketing team, the amount of investment and focus you spend on creativity. And I don't mean just classic creative disciplines like design, video editing, website development. I'm talking about how you make every aspect of your marketing more creative and more differentiated is going to get more and more important. And I think tools like Daily are going to help that, right? Am I going to use Daily's illustration in one of my Facebook ads at HubSpot? Maybe, maybe not. But Is it going to maybe inspire somebody on my team to think very differently about solving a problem? Is it going to change how we maybe come up with potential solutions to problems? Yes, I think that is what's going to happen. And I think creativity is this scarce resource that is this false scarcity. I think we all have it and we just refuse to admit it to ourselves. And I actually think technology is going to help bring that out of us over the next several years. Right. I agree. I think it takes the busy work away so you can actually be more creative because there is so much busy work in every role. Uh, do I have to spend 10 hours, 20 hours, 30 hours in Adobe or, or Canva or whatever, knowing what to do so then I can think about how to be creative and make a creative design? Exactly. That, that's like, that completely defeats the point. It's like, what what is this idea that I have in the world and how do I get that idea to the world as fast as possible? And I think that is what we are on the precipice of. And I am so freaking excited about that. It 
can you can you imagine how the, how much creativity increases when tools and software are not a friction point? Yes. When you don't have to spend 30 to 40 hours to learn to do something, you can, at your point, you can have a creative idea and you can actually have most of that idea in a finished product without you having to learn all of the technology around that. And I 100% agree. I think it's good for the world. I watched a really great interview with Sam Altman and uh, I can't remember the person interviewing him on the good and bad of AI. And I don't want to get into that because I'm not smart enough. But I think one of the things that Sam did speak to is, hey, yeah, it may disrupt some jobs, but it should create better jobs. And if you look at where we are today, that is how the world has progressed today. When one thing gets disrupted and it's painful, it does open up opportunities for a better life for people who can do better things, work on better things that are much more interesting. All right, Kieran, I want to close out this topic with something I think that's important for every marketer. And it's a framework that I think you and I use in our thinking a lot that I want to make sure we we share. And a framework that, you know, that Kieran and I use that I, I kind of loosely named like polarized thinking is like you assume on any issue, you just think about the far extremes of each issue, right? Right. And one of the aspects of polarized thinking that I think really makes a difference is that what the cultural norm assumes is the is the truth the exact opposite is normally true right like the exact opposite long term is normally true and for example most of the world doesn't see themselves as creative people i actually think the exact opposite is true i think the vast majority of the world are creative people right and i think that is the opportunity for you as a marketer is to look at your situation and say what is everybody to assume to be true in my market or my industry? And how do I do the exact opposite of that? Because that is probably actually true. And if I make the exact opposite of it true, then we are in a really, not just a great place from a differentiation wise, but just totally positioned to scale a company in a completely different way or scale a marketing strategy in a completely different way. And I think right. we are living in a, in a world with all this technology where things are going to commoditize faster and faster and things are going to move to sameness faster and faster. And your ability to go and move to the other end of the spectrum, the other end of the pole is going to be how you, how you succeed. It's like, we're talking about non-fungible tokens and this awesome technology. The biggest benefit in the future is being a fungible person, right? being somebody who can change dramatically and change quickly. Yeah, I agree. How much better can you be as a paid advertising marketer on Facebook when an AI can write ads as good as you? The only differentiation then is budget. And so you have to think much more creatively around how to grow your brand. I would love to kind of put it on our hit list of episodes to do is to do an entire episode about getting out of the sea of sameness. I think our listeners would love that. I think they would love clear examples of brands and people who have done that. If we had to choose people and brands that we respect for getting out of the sea of sameness, let's, let's do that. For, for the sake of a nautical metaphor, we'll, we'll pick who we'd put in our boat to sail through and sail out of the sea of sameness. You know, who are the people who we're going to hire to bring in, get in our boat, who've really kind of charted new waters and, and weren't afraid to be different out there. Uh, I love that, that we are definitely doing that in an upcoming episode. If you are listening and you think there is somebody who's awesome at differentiating, please leave it in the comments review on, on iTunes. And we read every single one of those and we will make sure to consider them and include them in the, in the show. Yes. Are we wrapping? We got one more, man. Let's do one more. We got one more. Okay. Final story for Twitter. So today it comes to us from the wolf of franchises <laughs> at franchise wolf on Twitter. And this is a Twitter account dedicated uh -huh. to crazy story about franchise businesses. Oh yes. That is like a very 
tried and true business model. There are probably a ton of people listening to us right now who are working in franchise-based businesses. And he or she, I don't know who is behind it, writes epic Twitter threads on franchises. Okay? And I saw a good one on Dippin' Dots. First of all, Karen, do you know what Dippin' Dots are? I do not know what Dippin' Dots are. <laughs> <laughs> yes, this is, this is exactly what I thought was going to happen, everyone listening. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. <laughs> so Dippin' Dots are little tiny micro frozen balls of ice cream. Ooh. For people listening, I am showing Kieran a picture. Yes. And so you can have little balls of ice cream of different flavors and then like spoon up different like mixes of of them and think of them as like little micro ice cream balls. Oh, I mean like who doesn't want micro little circular things of ice cream that you can mix and match. Doesn't that sound refreshing? If you're listening, you were at a sporting event or a mall in the last 30 years, you had some Dippin' Dots. They were dope. Like you've, you're like, wait, why do I have regular ice cream? Dippin' Dots are amazing. So what's interesting about this is that the Dippin' Dots went bankrupt in 2011, which is pretty crazy, right? Because they kind of had this heyday of you know malls, baseball stadiums, things like that, where they were distributing the product. And then they went bankrupt. And somebody bought them for $12 million. And now they do over $330 million in revenue per year. What? What? Oh, Oh my God. And so you're like, how? How how is this even happening? Couple couple of fun facts. First of all, Dippin' Dots came from a scientist who was trying to create a new food process for cattle, where he was trying to freeze (laughs) cattle feed so that it was like more productive for cattle. And that's how it all came about. And then- this guy bought bought Dippin' Dots and, oh, they started selling Dippin' Dots and, and they, they you're like, oh, cool. What'd they do? They just fix distribution? Kind of. But instead, it comes back to one of the themes of today, licensing. If you're a business mm. out there, if you're a marketer out there, intellectual property, licensing. That's that's the big, one of the big themes of today's Twitter set. You know how they make the majority of their money, Kieran? In 2018, they created a subsidiary of their tech, their technology to make these little freezing dots. And they license it to Impossible Foods and Beyond Meat. And they use it to create the like the fat appearance in, in vegan burgers and vegan meat. And so they make a ton of money because this is now how we consume non-animal meat. The Dippin' Dots tech is a massive part of that. Isn't that wild? That's wild. So the person who sold it for $12 million did not know the value of that tech? No. That is incredible. Well, so you're like, what the hell does ice cream and Impossible Foods have to do with marketing? Let me tell you. The reason that company wasn't successful is because somebody saw it in one particular way and in the way they all had always seen it. Mm. Oh, this is, an, this is a way to make ice cream. Even though it didn't start as a way to make ice cream. It started as a way to feed, feed cows. But they saw that. And so they didn't see the potential of other avenues of that technology, right? The same thing is going to go with your marketing. If you have a marketing strategy or if you have a product strategy, you're an entrepreneur, and it's not going how you want, giving up is one option. It could just be bad. But more likely, if you change your perspective on it, there's a huge opportunity ahead of you. Make it really tactical and actionable today. Like If you are not differentiated from your competitors in your product positioning, it's because you've been looking at that problem the same way for too long. Yeah. And you need to go through an exercise and look at it completely differently. Look at it from the opposite end of the spectrum, but also like 
other points of view that you would have just never, ever considered before. Like literally consider every point of view and you are likely going to find a new way forward that is better and differentiated. And that to me is my takeaway from the Dippin' Dots story. Yeah, I love that. I love that. And it speaks to the not living in a sea of sameness because if you, most marketing strategies are built from customer research and what everyone else is doing in the competition, which is not not a bad thing to look at. But if you do that, you're going to always end up with the same thing. But remember everybody listening to close us out. The best marketers do two things. The best marketers give their customers exactly what they want. And at the same time, give their customers what they don't yet know that they want. Yes. And that is the second thing is the thing that most marketers struggle with. Yes. And what, what do I mean by that second thing? Giving customers they don't yet know what they want. For lack of a better word, that means like, being freaking cool, having taste, perspective, point of view on what is going to happen and being a leader. Is your brand a leader or are they a follower? Mm. It, you're never going to build an iconic brand, an iconic company if you are a follower of your competitors or you're a follower of the same way a market has always done something. You are going to change the game when you move to being a leader and surprise people by giving people what they don't yet realize is going to come and what is going to happen. And that's what Kieran and I are trying to do on this pod, baby. Unconventional thinking. We're trying to share that with you. I hope that you will listen to us every week. I hope that you subscribe. I hope that you leave us a review on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, because I really love doing this. I'd love to keep doing this. Kieran, what do you want to say as a, as a closing shot for everybody today? I want to say, as Kip said in a memo when we were talking about this show, all the progress depends on an unreasonable man. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I've known I've known Kieran for for almost nine years now. There is he might listen to me someday. Yeah. Maybe maybe once we cross the decade <laughs> mark, he will he will actually pay attention to what I say. No, subscribe, follow. Uh, leave a review and we read the comments, but we're going to make them part of the show. There's a bunch more shows we have in mind and the people who are going to be incorporated in those shows and included in those shows are all you people leaving reviews. Let me leave you with a fun fact before we close out, Kip. Houdini uh, died from a punch in the gut. How long do you think he could hold his breath for on average? What was his record? Oh, we're back to, to the Kieran Flanagan school of breath holding. Breath holding. I bet Houdini could hold his breath for 12 minutes. Three minutes, 30. So if anyone is into breath holding, that is a really good marker to go against. Like hold your breath as long as Udini. That is what I learned this week on breath holding. Well, I cannot hold my breath more than like 30 seconds. So Kieran is crushing me in breath holding. But in all seriousness, listen, subscribe to the pod. We have some amazing, amazing new segments coming, amazing reoccurring experts coming. It is going to get better and better yes. every week. We are bringing it for you. We are here working hard to bring you the best. Talk to you all soon. Peace out, everybody. Bye.